Connell Tribune, Thursday the 26th of March 2020. After Easter 1970, the North has changed forever. For just over six months after August 69, events in Belfast and throughout the six counties appeared to be settling down. After the burning of Bombay Street in the, amid the onslaught of sectarian bigotry against the Lower Falls and the Battle of the Bogside, Events appeared to have taken a common direction since the arrival of the British Army that created a buffer zone between the falls and the Shankill, Ardoin and Crumlin Roads, Short Strand and the Newton Arge Road, and Derry as in Belfast the barricades were still in place. Free Derry was created and the RUC and Army didn't enter. The length of the lower falls, the small streets were barricaded to prevent loyalist incursion. Behind the barricades, the Civil Citizens Defence Committee took control in maintaining law and order. Behind the men and women who manned the barricades night and day was the nucleus of the IRA, who indeed were part of the committees. Negotiations were held with the local army commander as to preserving a form of authority. There was a tacit acceptance from the army they were dealing with the people who really controlled the situation. In 1969, it had been a massive physical as well as cultural shock to nationalists living in Belfast. Despite having lived through partition in the six counties, survived the pogroms in the 20s and then 50 years of sectarianism and a denial of rights as Irish citizens. Nationalist Belfast had always been defiant in its approach to the northern statelet. Despite being abandoned by the Free State Government after the War of Independence and Boundary Commission, Nationalism and republicanism in the six counties never gave up on the dream that one day the country would be united. But they were military and politically defeated. The IRA, both north and south, were devastated by the efforts of the Free State and British armies, the RUC and B-Specials. The Boundary Commission had been a travesty and, to be honest, a complete sellout, as Cosgrave and O'Higgins were just happy to hold on to the area, which had already morphed into the Free State and would eventually become the Republic. What would happen to nationalists in West Belfast, Derry, Fermanagh, Tyrone, South Armagh and Down was just an afterthought. And considering nationalists were in a majority in Fermanagh and Tyrone, 50-50 in Derry and Armagh, a massive majority in Derry City and a third of the population in Belfast, yet their aspirations were completely overlooked. Ironically for Unionists in Donegal, Cavan and Monaghan, they were in a similar situation, only in reverse. For the next 50 years, nationalists were second-class citizens, if they were even accepted as that by Stormont. They were personified by a popular epithet, nothing as low as a large Catholic's head. In the 20s, both states bedded in. In the 30s, internal political problems took precedence in the 26 counties, while in the six counties, although there was a temporary coming together of Catholic and Protestant working class to protest against Stormont during the Great Depression, Sadly, it wouldn't last. In the 40s, World War II dominated events until the Free State became a republic and Britain declared the six counties an integral part of the UK. But times were changing. Partition was becoming permanent. A futile border campaign by the IRA in the 50s achieved nothing. And they, along with everyone else, seen a new direction in the 60s as the world changed, although maybe the six counties didn't. My parents were domiciled in Belfast over 20 years by 1968. Like most nationalists, they just got on with things. Both hard workers with two jobs each. Political differences probably went over their heads. 
Never heard politics mentioned as a kid. Although we did turn off God Save the Queen at the end of the night when it came on BBC. And like most nationalists, you'd leave the cinema five minutes before the end as they again played the foreign anthem. For my parents then, the sudden onset of the civil rights movement and in turn the violence in August 69 was perturbing to say the least. As parents of a 15-year-old teenager, they knew difficult times lay ahead. After August 69, school for me was jettisoned. The loyalists now you see texts in the lower falls had planted seeds of revolution, to use a rather flamboyant term. Our defence of the falls in our home area politicised us to an extent we didn't really see this statelet as having anything to do with us. It wasn't our state, the RUC were not our place. And despite some giving tea and biscuits to the army, they definitely weren't on our side. And the fruit scones, amongst other things more lethal, would be thrown at the soldiers after Easter 70 and no more tea. Behind the barricades, major developments were taking place. The IRA had split after the disaster of August. The Marxist leadership, which left the falls denuded of weapons and defence, were cast to one side, as a new, more radicalised movement was founded from older Republicans, who rejected the working-class stages theory to socialism and unity espoused by those who became the official IRA, Workers' Party, Democratic Left and eventually Labour. And eventually, along with thousands of working-class youth, the split in republicanism created the provost. In the six-month honeymoon period, so-called the general officer, Commander Ian Freeland, who announced it was over after the Easter riots and the soldiers would be allowed to shoot to kill petrol bombers amid rioting. There had been a relative peace. The first peace lines were erected between the falls and the shangle, but ironically, the first RUC man, Victor Arbuckle, was killed by loyalists in the shankle. Also, loyalists planted several bombs in the Republic. As we moved into the spring 70, the RUC started to make tentative steps back into West Belfast. And with the New York UDR regiment who had replaced the hated B-Specials, they recruited a small number of nationalists initially after some reforms by the British government. But in February, another UVF bomb blasted an RTE mast at Rafaux. Apparently, God-fearing loyalists receiving the Angelas and Dana winning Eurovision on RTE airwaves was too much for them. Whatever about Dana, John Hume brought substance and leadership, and along with Jerry Fitt and the recently deceased Seamus Malm, who spent a lot of time in this parish playing golf in Rosapenna, they formed a new constitutional political party, the SDLP, to subsume the disastrous Nationalist Party of Eddie McAteer, who had failed miserably to advance the cause of nationalism during the 50 years of partition. And on a more difficult proposition, they had to position themselves as a bulwark against a rising tide represented by the mainly youthful provisional IRA. Recruiting and training in the background as the manifestation of physical force republicanism to win the hearts and minds of northern nationalism. So we arrived at Easter 1970, and to be honest, things were getting back to a slight normality. People were working away as usual, the army patrolling without anyone paying much attention. Although our football team were involved in an incident, which was quite funny. Our manager, Bob Fennell, had arranged a game against an army unit based at Aldergrove, the old, the old airport. We were to play them as part of their Hearts and Minds programme to let the natives see they were stationed in our communities as friends, probably just like they did in West Cork in 1920.
Two games were to be played, home and away, in good European Cup style. But the night before the first game was to be played, the local revolutionaries of which we were part cut down the goalposts. I must say none of the team were actually involved in the physical manifestation of saw against innocent white goalpost. We just wanted to beat the bastards on the field, which we did thoroughly the following week on their pitch. If truth be told, the King's own Scottish Borders Regiment were as bad footballers as they were soldiers. When the riots started, they couldn't get near us, just licking the pitch. Sadly for Bob, he put a lot of effort into providing the youth of the area a distraction from conflict. The British Army shot dead his son Gerard four years later, an IRA volunteer. He'd come back from England in 69 as things kicked off. Just one more the many casualties in the ever-increasing conflict. We lived in Turf Lodge, a new national estate built in the early 60s, just across the White Rock from Ballymurphy, an older estate, and across the Springfield was the loyalist New Barnsley, or mixed. But there was never any sectarian stuff, even after August 69. Then on Easter Tuesday, the local Orange Band decided to march down the road for some reason, which led to a reaction from Ballymurphy and Turf Lodge. And despite the efforts of community workers and indeed IRA volunteers, it ended up in a full-scale raid with the British Army after the Orange Parade had headed off to join the main parade in Bangor. There was serious tension in the air, not helped by local girls attending a disco organised by the army and the Henry Target Taggart barracks. Between the Orange Parade and the soldier lovers, as they were dubbed, several who persisted had their heads shaved and tarred and fellered in local parlance. The riots went on for four nights, thousands of gathered in Ballymurphy and battles raged between disaffected nationalist youths and young soldiers from Liverpool, Glasgow and Newcastle. Half bricks, petrol bombs and absolutely anything was used to attack the army. The soldiers would return fire with CAS gas, rubber bullets, snatch squads, who launched sorties into the crowds to take prisoners. Then armoured cars would trundle through the estates to break up the crowds, followed by jeeps racing into the riotous assembly. But this soon ended when wire was tied across streets at head high to catch soldiers standing in the back of the jeep and one was half decapitated. The rioting ebbed and flow for almost a week. It was the first clashes between nationalist youths and the army. Hundreds were injured on both sides. Massive amounts of CS gas was fired at the frontline rioters, but obviously it floated into the wee houses in the background and affected elderly pensioners and people with pulmonary problems. While the rioting was going on, other wee women would put buckets of water and vinegar outside their houses for rioters affected by the gas. It was the start of community resistance which panned out eventually in massive support for the provost as things progressed. We were of course centre stage in the riding, lobbing petrol bombs, firing catapults, throwing everything from broken six-inch blocks to the proverbial kitchen sink. That was when we were on the offensive. At other times we were climbing over garden walls and fences trying to avoid capture by the snatch squads. There was also a danger from loyalists gathered in the spring martin which was on high ground overlooking Ballymurphy, a fact which was crucial when the army and loyalists killed 11 after internment the following year. For the moment the guns were offside, despite Freeland's threat to shoot to kill, the army held their fire, whilst the IRA in the background were in training mode as of yet, and the riots were almost a distraction. Although they recognised the reaction of national use was the one they wanted, 
and I was building a community spirit of resistance which sustained them through the 30-year-long war. Over a thousand British soldiers eventually arrived in the Ballymore area, partly to teach the Raiders a lesson. The Reds also brought the TV cameras and became world news. CBS brought the story to US viewers. They highlighted how the army had a welcome of sorts six months previously, but now the tables had turned and the position of loyalism back in Westminster in the army against the traditional Republican enemy of the state was resumed. So back to script. That week shattered the previous six months of relative reforms. The British had lost an opportunity which might have changed the face of the previous, of the next 40 years. If they'd taken the right steps, who knows how things would have panned out. But of course they resorted to type. Catholics, Nationalists, Republicans, Fenians, all were the enemy in the greater scheme of things. Westminster never learned anything from history. Anyone who studied the period intensively won't be surprised that it wasn't a foregone conclusion we would be facing into 30 years of conflict. The reality is the IRA was caught in the hop in August 69 and after the split. It took a full year to get up to speed and only then slowly moving from defence to attack in early 71. There hadn't been any real violence in Belfast since partition, excluding the hunger rats in the 30s, and even that wasn't Republican orientated. And only small isolated Republican activity in the 40s and 50s with people like Joe Cahill and Jerry Adams' dad. So the conflagration which hit Belfast following the Battle of the Bogside, well not totally unexpected considering the build-up during that summer, but was in the context of a fairly settled statelet, abandoned by the Republic, two communities who were not exactly bosom buddies but were hardly at each other's throats. There were periods in the 60s when Unionism was actually thinking if they treated nationals well, they might become little unionists. A theory experimented with Terence O'Neill, the Prime Minister in 69. That was never really a runner, but now there was civil disobedience and armed struggle in the early days. The British got it all wrong and exacerbated the situation. Instead of tackling the real situation, which was unionist misrule and sectarian bigotry, they went about it in a ham-fisted way, taking direction from Stormont. As the next few years roll on, we'll look at the various moments in time when the British government's dereliction to an even-hand approach to the evolving situation created the future conflict. The false curfew in July 70, internment August 71 and Bloody Sunday, January 72. I'm convinced without these three events we wouldn't have had a conflict to the same extent. It's all hindsight, of course, but there was never a groundswell of Republican support in Belfast at any time unless we look back at the Presbyterian United Irishmen of the 1790s. In the 1920s, we Joe Devlin of the Irish Party defeated Dev soundly in West Belfast. In the 50s border campaign, the IRA avoided Belfast like the plague due to lack of popular support and risk of sectarianism. The jailed men of the field's 50s campaign came out to a new dawn in the 60s and hung up their guns metaphorically and prematurely as it turned out, as they became the seed growth of the new republicanism, along with profound British stupidity. 1970 is now 50 years in the distant past. What happened in those early days of street conflict set the path for the way forward. But it happened despite a dysfunctional statelet and not just because of it. All right, it was always dysfunctional, gerrymandered statelet, a bastion of religious bigotry, basket case economy relying on massive grants 
from the British Exchequer, a workforce dominated by the state civil service, device of education system and an outdated housing system. Almost any one of them could trigger over a revolution in a normal society, but this wasn't a normal society. It was starting to creak at the seams. The nationalist population was growing, entering university, becoming professionals and leaders of society. And we're moving towards the 21st century and into the mix came change in the world. Vietnam, Palestine, the Suburban, Left Bank, Czechoslovakia, South Africa, and finally 50 years since partition in the treaty. Ireland was praying for change. A generation who embraced the Beatles and the Eagles, Man United and Celtic, were also inspired by Castro and Shea and Lilia Khaled. Climbing through back gardens and over walls, through entries, and bombarding British Army armoured cars with petrol bombs. That was just the start.